your hands out like this for the Lord. Say, Jesus, I'll take whatever you got. <laughs> your life's about to be changed. You don't even know it. Here we go. Okay, I'm going to show you a video first to open things up. This is an antique bear trap. And these bear traps are made of three pieces. So the, the wings on the outside are called the long springs. And then the flappy-doos are called the jaws, and they've got teeth on them to grab the bear's foot. And then that circle in the middle is called the pan. Everybody say pan. The pan is called the pan because that's where you put the bait. In the really old days, they might have put meat there or something like that to get the bear to come in. And the circle in the middle, the pan, is the trigger for the trap. If you touch it, the whole thing springs and the jaws come up and close on the bear's foot. These are illegal to use now, so don't worry about it. You know, we're not doing this to bears in the wild now, but I just want you to see how, I want you to hear and see how these things work. This guy trips this bear trap with a piece of wood. Yep, that's all we need. Thanks, Corey. Instant, fast, boom, snaps up. I found a video of a morning radio show shock jock who stuck his arm in one of those for ratings. And I was going to show it to you. It's actually no blood, no gore, but it did break his arm. But I decided a lot of you wouldn't want to see that. But you can imagine sticking your arm in there. There is no way you could get in and out of that that fast. If you touch the pan, it's going to trigger that trap and snap on you. All right, so the bear trap has three parts. The wings on the side are the springs that run the whole thing, and you have to push them down, and then when they're pushed down, you open the jaws up, and you set the trigger, and the bear touches the pan, boom, the whole thing, boom, just sets off. Okay, so traps have been around for thousands of years, and in ancient Greek language, in the language that the Bible's written in, the New Testament's written, their word for the pan is scandalon. Everybody say scandalon. That is where we get the English word scandal, but that's not my point this morning. The scandal on is the pan. There's, there's all kinds of different traps. There's snares and there's deadfalls and, and all kinds of different spring traps. And any trigger that sets off a trap in ancient Greek language is called the scandal on. So let's go to the scripture here. In Matthew 24, the disciples ask Jesus, when are you coming back and what are the signs of the end of the age and how are we going to know that you're returning and setting up your kingdom? And, and Jesus goes into this two and three chapter sermon on all the stuff, wars and rumors of wars and, and uh, pestilences and all this bad stuff that's going to happen in between then and when he returns. And, and Matthew 24, verses 9 to 13, he, he, in the middle of this list of all this terrible stuff that's going to happen before he returns, he says, and many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Point out a few words to you that I want you to see that Jesus used the word many twice. He used the word offended and hate and love. All right, he said in the end times before I return that many will be offended. Do we not live in a ridiculously offended world? Everybody's offended and, and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So the word many in English means an indetermined large number, like many just means a lot. But in Greek, the word there has a definite meaning. It means the majority or most. 
is what it means. So at least 51%, maybe 99%, but at least 51%, Jesus says, most people will become offended and get filled with hate before I come back. He says, you'll be offended and hate another, and your love, the love of many, will grow cold. Okay, so we know that the world is full of offended people, hateful people, betrayals, sin, and terrible. But Jesus isn't talking about the world here. He's talking about his church. And we can know it for sure because the word love is agape. Now, those of you who know your Bible, you know that in Greek language, there are three words for love in Greek. There's eros, which is romantic uh, sexual attraction between male and female. We have phileo, which is the word for family and friendship love. And we have the word agape, which is the love of God. And only Christians have the agape love of God shed abroad in our hearts when we got born again. So when Jesus says that because lawlessness will abound, the God love of many will grow cold, we can know that he's talking about Christians here. Because the world doesn't have agape in their heart to grow cold. They haven't had it yet. If they make Jesus Lord and are born again, then it comes into their heart. Amen? Amen. Yes? So Jesus is saying many in the church will be offended. In the church they will betray one another. In church they will hate each other. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. There's lots of warnings about false prophets in the New Testament, not listening to teachers who are teaching false preaching and books and whatever. And most Christians know to be on the lookout for false prophets. But Jesus actually said that the wolves will come in sheep's clothing. He didn't say the wolves will come in shepherd's clothing. John Bevere, I need to give credit where credit is due. Those of you who've read his book, The Bait of Satan, or seen the video curriculum 20-some years ago, um, you're going to recognize half of this sermon, or maybe two-thirds of it, is from him. just need to give him credit, but this is what the Lord told me to do. But John Bevere said, I've preached for 30 years on six continents, and I guarantee you there are more wolves in the chairs than at the microphone. Because wolves come in sheep's clothing, they don't come in shepherd's clothing. Yes, there's bad pastors, and there's people teaching false doctrine, but there's way more people in the congregation spreading dissent and offense and betrayal than from the microphone. Because lawlessness will abound, the God love of many, more than half of the church, will grow cold. He who endures to the end will be saved. The word offended there in Greek is skandalizo. Where have you heard that before? The root word of scandalizo is, come on, scandalon. It's translated correctly. The word is offense. It means unforgiveness, to be angry at somebody who's wronged you. It's translated correctly, but the root word of it is the trigger on the trap. Jesus said many will stick their hand in the trap. Most of the church, before I've come back, will stick their hand in the trap of offense and not be able to get it out. And so they will betray each other, and they will hate each other. Now, hate in English is a really strong word. I'm like, I get in your face, and I scream, and I spit, and I get all red, and I cuss, and that's hate. But in Greek, in the Bible, the way God views hate is not raw, vicious emotion. The word hate there means to love less. God says when you get offended, you just love less. And in his book, that's worse than hating. Because if you're actively 
angry with somebody, you still care. But our counterfeit for forgiveness, our defense mechanism when we're hurt or angry or we can't get along with somebody is just to draw back. And I'm not going to scream and cuss and yell at you, but I'm just going to love you less. I just, I can't handle you. I don't want to get hurt again. I don't want relationship. And God calls that hate. And that's life in the church, in Christian families, in the family of God. To just love less is hatred. When Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, these are David's kids in the Old Testament, this is Tamar's brother Absalom, it says he hated his brother and he spoke neither good nor evil to him. It doesn't say he didn't speak to him, he just didn't say anything good or bad. He just put on a fake smile and shook his hand and acted like nothing was wrong. In the Bible, God says that's hatred. Jesus said, I would way rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. Your lukewarmness makes me want to puke. We're not allowed to just love less. The people in church or in family or wherever else that have hurt us. Offense and unforgiveness is a trap. And because Christians, we know. You've heard the Bible, you know Jesus ordered us to forgive. We know we have to forgive. So we deceive ourselves that we have, but really we're just loving less. I forgive, but I don't have to like you. I forgive, but I don't have to be in relationship with you. I forgive you because... Now at least I don't cry when I see you. I can be fake in front of you. I can give you a hug or a smile and we can move on. The Proverbs 18, 19 says, An offended brother is more unyielding than a walled city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle gate. An offended brother or sister is like the walls of a city. If there are walls between you and anyone, you're offended. No, nope, I don't want you. I, I wall myself in and I'm not letting you in. I don't want to know you. I don't want you to know me. I'm not going to talk to you. I can be fake and pleasant. We're not going to have a relationship. I love you less. Aren't you glad God doesn't forgive that way? Come on. Romans 12 tells us how we're supposed to love each other. Romans 12, 9 to 20, this is abbreviated, but it says love must be sincere Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I know it's impossible for you to go back and remarry your ex, right? I know that you're not going to have an ongoing relationship with a person that sexually abused you when you were a kid. I understand that. You can't go back and make it right. But in your own heart, you can be free. And you can love that person with the love of God. You can at least pray in all serious truth for their salvation. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, our heart must be completely free 
from offense. Otherwise, our heart is in the trap. We touched the scandal on, and it snapped before you could get out of it, and now you're stuck. We're here this morning to ask Jesus to get us out of the trap. Because what we're talking about here is live at peace with everybody does not mean the counterfeit peace of just stop caring. Stop trying. Just be fake and pleasant and move on. That's not what it is. Because David shows us in Psalm 35 what it is. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. How many of you experienced that? You did good. They rewarded you with evil and made you sad. Angry, hurt, whatever. Everybody's got both hands up and all ten fingers, right? Every single person in the room has been repaid evil for good and made us sad. David says, all right, when that happens, look it up. Look at this. David said, as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth and I humbled myself with fasting. I prayed for them with all my heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. Have you prayed with all your heart? For the person that betrayed you, or abandoned you, or left you, or hurt you, or said whatever they said. If there's anyone that you wouldn't love as a friend, if you wouldn't pray for them like family, then you're stuck in the trap. 1 Peter 1.22 says, have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. That's the opposite of and many's love will grow cold. It's the opposite of, and many will love less one another. So there's four categories of offense as far as I can delineate, and maybe there's more, but this is what I got this morning. And Number one, I get offended when nobody did anything wrong. Not the other person and not me. It happened twice in the last eight days, two different times, two different men said something to me and it really stung. But immediately when, I, when I'm like, oh, mm, immediately I'm like, that wasn't wrong for him to say. It just hurts my pride. I didn't want to hear that. You know? And one of them, I thought even that his facts were wrong, but he didn't do it with an attitude. He didn't say it any wrong way. It wasn't wrong for him to bring it up. It just stung. It just hurt my pride or hurts my feelings or whatever, and I just have to, I just have to get over it because nobody did anything wrong. It's just the rubs of life. And maybe I needed to hear it. Hello? So number one, we all get offended when nobody did anything wrong. Number two, we get offended when we're the one that's wrong. That's really hard to tell. Am I the one that's wrong or is the other person that's wrong? When it's you, but when it's somebody else, it's really easy to tell. Of course they're the one that's wrong. But listen, it's really easy to see. Every parent knows this. Every parent in the room, your toddlers and your teenagers get offended with you when you didn't do anything wrong. Right? They're going to pout. They're going to throw a fit. They're going to huff and puff. They're going to throw things or cry or whatever. And they're just going to, they're going to let you know they're dissatisfied with the management of this family right now. And you didn't do anything wrong. All you did was make a decision. So the person that is offended is the one that's wrong. Those of you who've worked in customer service, I mean, come on. Come on. People are crazy. Like they get offended when you did nothing wrong. 
and they're wound up and screaming and yelling and cussing and throwing things or whatever because their burger didn't have cheese, you know, or what, you know, whatever it is. You worked in customer service, you know, sometimes the people who are offended are the ones that are wrong. Right? You know, if you've worked in leadership or government or authority position of management in any any situation, you know when you make a decision, there's going to be people who get upset even though nothing bad happened. Hello? Yeah. So in those situations, it's going to take a lot of maturity on your part, but you're just going to have to figure out, no, nothing really bad happened. I'm the one. I should quit pouting. I don't have a right to hold on to hurt feelings. Number three is that I get offended with God often. And if I'm offended with Jesus obviously I am wrong and he is right. <laughs> but if you've been a Christian for more than six months, maybe more than a week, you have had an opportunity to be offended with God or something that he did that you did not ask him to do or something that he didn't do that you did ask him to do. Like, come on, Jesus is an offensive guy. He called a woman a dog. He called Peter Satan. When Peter successfully walks on water, it's not good enough. Come on, Peter, where's your faith? I mean, he is gruff, rude even, with the disciples on a few occasions. He is so abrupt. The verse that says, behold, the kindness and severity of God. The word severity means rudeness. Like, I've gone to God in prayer, and I need sympathy, I think. And he's like, suck it up and do it again tomorrow. I'm like, hmm, Okay. If I'm offended with God, obviously I'm wrong and he's not. But we're not going to deal with any of those three categories. I really only want to deal with the last one, which is the, the honest offenses, the real pain, the real wounds, the real hurt, where somebody returned you evil for good. And we've all been there. Every one of us has been truly wronged with real wounds and real pain, real offenses. And I know that you know what Jesus told us to do about that. But we're going to review the foundation of everything, and then we're going to build from there. So let's go to Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus, and he thinks he's going to impress Jesus. And he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Peter thinks, he's, Jesus, is not going to impress you if I'd forgive somebody seven times before I cut them off? And Jesus said, no, I don't say to you seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And in Luke 14, Jesus adds the word, in a day. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Who remembers from November how much 10,000 talents is? It's a weight of gold. How much is it worth? 15 billion. I heard somebody say it. 15 billion dollars, an unpayable debt, is owed to this master by his servant. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that it be sold and that his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. It's utterly ridiculous. He cannot earn $15 billion to pay his master back. Jesus' point is, this is me before God. I can never pay God back what I owe him. The master of the servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found of his own accord one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii would be about $20,000. So this guy is owed $20,000 by a fellow servant. It's real money. If somebody owes me $20,000, I want to get paid back. But Jesus' point is, what, compared to what I owe God, $20,000 is nothing. 
He laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. The exact same words he's just used with the king. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. From his heart. This is the only parable that Jesus explained what it meant without being asked. It's that important to him that we understand what he meant. That we owe God an unpayable debt and God gladly forgives us. But if we refuse to forgive each other of the smaller debts that we owe each other, then he's going to hand us over to the torturers. There's no way that guy in prison being tortured is going to be able to earn any money and pay anything back. So that's eternity. Hello? I'm not here to debate the doctrine of once saved, always saved, but the guy was forgiven, but because he refused to forgive, God put his debt back on him and handed him over for eternity to be tormented because he wouldn't from his heart forgive. John Bevere says that a person who is tormented, either with physical pain or emotional torment that you can't find a root or an answer to, he said you should start with looking at unforgiveness. That if you have an unanswered health problem or an unanswered emotional problem that just won't go away no matter what you do, it may be an unresolved relationship. God has handed you over because you haven't forgiven. There are two evidences that you have a fence in your heart, that you've put your hand in Satan's bear trap and you're stuck there. One of them is if you have any walls between you and anyone else. Is there anyone else you don't want peace with? Or you're not doing everything you can do to make peace? Or are you in torment, either physical or emotional pain? Kenneth Hagin said 90% of the healings he saw, thousands of supernatural healings, he said 90% of them came through forgiveness. That tells me 90% of our health problems is is unforgiveness. Time does not heal all wounds. Forgiveness heals all wounds. It may take time to forgive. Actually, it doesn't. Forgiveness is an instant choice. It may take time to heal. Let's say it that way. Forgiveness is an instant choice. It's a faith obedience. I, I release the other person from the guilt of what they did to me. God, I ask you to forgive them. I forgive them. But then it may take counseling and prayer and pastoral care and just healing. It, it's going to require conversation, confrontation to address the issue. The time does not heal all wounds. You can't just keep living and hoping it'll get better. It won't. You can't bury it and hope it'll get better. That's just our love growing cold. Jesus said in Matthew 5 what to do. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Four things 
Love your enemies. The word is agape. Love them with the love of God. Love them like God loves them. Well, at the very least, that means you're, you're desperate for them to be saved and to come to Jesus. Because God is. Bless those who curse you. Somebody said bad things about you, you only say good things about them. To their face and behind them. You bless them. You bless them when you pray. You do good to those who hate you. Jesus never said forgive and forget. He said forgive and keep going back to them to do good. I'll give you an example of this in just a minute. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus never said pray for your mama. But he did say in Psalm 35, pray for your enemy like he's your mama. Jesus never said pray for your grandkids. But he said pray for your enemies like they're your best friend. Thank you so much, Mitch. I'm so glad I came to church this morning. Pray for an enemy like he's a friend. At this point in my sermon, I would always give you a real-life example of how, how I've lived this out and how I learned this, but I can't tell you any of my stories because most of you would know most of the names. So I'm going to tell you John Bevere's story. You can go on YouTube, type in Bait of Satan, and you'll hear this full story, but uh, you get 10, 45-minute videos if you want to watch one. And I need to give him credit. If you come across anything by John and Lisa Bevere, I heartily endorse them. You need to listen to anything they wrote or say. Fantastic people. But I'm just going to share you John's story this morning. So in the early 90s, John's a youth pastor at a church. And he, he keeps this person anonymous, but I know one time I heard him say it was his pastor. He said, there was a man who became a father figure in my life that I loved with all my heart. And this man could do no wrong. He was, he was a great man of God. And he said, and I was excited to be associated with him. Anyway, he said, over time, this man hurt me, and he sinned against me, and again, and again, and he sinned against me again. And then I saw that he sinned against other people on, in the church and on the staff, and I began to love him less. I began to withdraw from him and, and put walls up. And he said, I knew I had to forgive, so I said that I did. And his wife, Lisa, would ask, it's like, are you offended? Nope, nope, I'm fine. I forgive him. It's all okay. He said, but I wasn't. He said, my, my Bible reading time dried up. I wasn't moved by worship music anymore. I wasn't excited to go to church. He said, uh, after months of this going on, and Lisa kept telling him, you're offended. You've got to work this out. You're offended. You're offended. He's like, nope, nope, I'm fine. He said, one day I was out trying to pray. He said, nothing was working. And I said, I just stopped and I said, God, am I offended? He said, and inside my heart I heard, yes! He said it was the loudest, clearest he'd ever heard from God, even until this day. And he said, so, so then, I, once I admitted before God that I was, then Matthew 5 came to mind. Pray for those who persecute you, who have sinned against you. So he said, it took a long time of me just standing in silence to force myself to pray God bless him. Amen. So that's all I had. I quit. I said for five weeks, every day, I made myself pray for this man. And all I could get out is, God bless him. Amen. I said after five weeks, I realized that's probably not what Jesus had in mind. <laughs> when he said, pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. He said, so I tried a little more. Okay, God, I know that you're not on my side against him. I know that you're for him. I know that you love him. I know you forgive his sin. 
I know that you know what he's done to me and how he's hurt me. And I, I know you know all that, but like, God, okay, okay, bless him, bless his wife and his kids and his job and his finances. And, and I pray, Lord, that he would know you. And, and, and he said in that couple weeks, he came across Psalm 35 where David says, he, re, he repaid me with evil for good, but I prayed for him with all my heart. He said, I, I tried, I honestly tried. It was a little bit better for a couple weeks. We said at the end of two weeks, which is now seven weeks into this, every day forcing himself to pray for this man. He said, all of a sudden, the dam broke, and all of the good and the bad stuff just blew up out of me. I just screamed his name, and I said, I love you! He said, all the gunk was gone, and the joy was back, and I was clean, and I felt God's love and presence for the first time in over a year, and I was free, and I was free of the trap. So we went to church that Sunday, and I felt this little, in my heart, I'm like, what now, God? Anyway, we got home and Lisa said, I guess you're going to have to go talk to him. No, 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 we're not going to talk about this. I'm just going to deal, about, deal with it with God. So, so Jesus said, do good to those who, who abuse you. And, he's, and he said, so I know enough to know that Jesus, when he says, go and if your brother sins against you, go and talk to him. What, he, what Jesus doesn't mean is, you've done this and you've done this and you've done this and you've done this and you need to apologize to me. Goodbye. That's not, that's not what Jesus means when he says, go and talk to your brother who sinned against you. It, you're coming to make peace. You're coming to be humble. You're coming to apologize for what you need to apologize for. You're coming to make peace. So Jesus said, not forgive and forget. He said, forgive and do good. John asked the Lord, what do I do? And God said, buy him a watch. He's like, yep, you buy him the best watch that you would want to have. He said, so I did. I bought him a $4,000 watch and I wrapped it up and I took him into his office and I set it on his desk and his eyes got really big and he opened it up and his eyes got enormous. He's like, what is this? He says, I need to apologize for you, to you. I've been judging you and I've been really upset and I have judged you wrongly and I'm here to ask your forgiveness. And he said, this man said, no, no, you have not judged me. No, you have not judged me wrongly. No. And John's like, yes, I have. I have been hard-hearted toward you. I have put up walls. I have withdrawn from you. I have not trusted you. And he said, and as I began to talk and cry and make myself right, the dam broke in him. And he said, in three hours, we came together like this, and we've been like that ever since for 30 years, best friends. And he went home to Lisa, and he said this. He said, what I'm feeling now, he said, I feel so much love for this man right now. He said, this has to be the love of God that covers a multitude of sins. He said, when I first knew this man, he could do no wrong in my sight. I loved him, I adored him, I worshipped the ground that he walked on. And he said, and then I saw all of his sin, and I withdrew, and I backed off, and I put up walls, and I didn't want a relationship. He said, now I have seen all of his sin, but I love him like I did at first. I have seen all of his sin, but I love him like I did at first. That's the love that covers a multitude of sins, folks. And really, this is the pattern of every relationship, every romance, every marriage darts out as this person is really, really, really cool. And then it's this person is really, really, really not cool. And are we going to break up? Are we going to cheat? Are we going to abandon each other? Are we giving up or is love going to cover a multitude of sins? When your baby is born, oh, this cute, little, adorable, innocent ball of blubber can never do anything wrong. 
And then they learn to speak. And then they learn to walk. And then they get an attitude. And then they get a debit card and a car. And there is a multitude of sins. Is love going to cover a multitude of sins? Or are we going to let this destroy the family? For some reason, that one is really, really easy for most parents to not give up, to keep loving. But with your own parents, it's so hard. But it's the same pattern. When you were a little kid, your parents were your heroes. They, could, they took care of you. They could do no wrong. And some of you had terrible situations right from the very beginning. But at some point, everybody began, you began to realize, oh, oh, my parents are not perfect. My parents are not right about a lot of stuff. And you see their humanity and their failings and their sins. And are you going to honor your father and mother with the love of God that covers a multitude of sins? Or are you going to rebel and throw them the middle finger and leave? Hello? This is what happens when everybody new comes to a church. Man, that last church, it sucked. This church is awesome. This worship's rocking, and the sermons are great, and God is here, and then you begin to see humanity. Oh, oh, yeah, the, this is not perfect around here, and, and Mitch has a multitude of sins. I'm going to go on to the next church. I'm going to keep going until I find the perfect church. And then you do, and you ruin it, because you're not. Are you going to cover a multitude of sins with the love of God? Aren't you glad God's forgiveness isn't the counterfeit of peace? I just withdraw from you and smile at you and give you a hug, but I love you less. No, he burns with fiery passion to be completely restored to you, to have nothing at all in between you. He didn't put up a wall. His love covers a multitude of sins. And somebody's thinking, but I'm not God. I can't do that. Well, Psalm 18, 29 says, by my God, I can leap over a wall. You can leap over your own walls. You can leap over somebody else's walls. You can break through. God's love is in you. If you're born again, God's love is in you. It got put in your heart. The Bible says it was put in your heart when you were born again. If you're, not here, if you're here and you're not born again, if you don't know Jesus this morning, you can't get healed from this stuff. You can't forgive anybody. And justifiably so. None of us can, but with the love of God, if you will surrender to Jesus, you, you can be, your heart can be completely free. Now again, I, I don't mean you go back and remarry your ex. I don't mean that you go back and, and form an ongoing relationship with somebody that abused you when you were a child. But you can be completely free in the real love of God for that person. And at a bare minimum, that is, I weep in prayer for that person's salvation. I want God to forgive them for what they did to me. God, I beg you to erase that from your eternal record of their life. And with each other, as Christians, it's got to be even further than that. We must love each other fervently. Above all things, have fervent, intense love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. There's no excuse. We can't drag our feet. 
I'm here this morning to beg you to admit that you're stuck in the trap. We can't open the trap. It's way too strong for us. But Jesus can. He can open the jaws of that trap and pull your heart out. And you can be free in a way you've never imagined or known before. You may think there was no way we can go back and resolve what was done. Three weeks ago or 30 years ago. I don't know. But he can. It starts with a choice that's instant. Right now, I choose to forgive. I release all offense. Jesus, opened the trap and let me free. And then the healing is going to happen over time. Some of it can happen this afternoon. You can make a phone call and it can be done in 20 minutes. Others of you, it's going to be months of counseling and, and working through things and healing and figuring out what's true and what's lie. And, but it begins right now by admitting you're stuck in the trap and asking Jesus to set you free. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And then we're just going to give you a long time to just be on your knees before the Lord. Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's one life-defining issue. Maybe it's a whole bunch of little things you've let snowball over time. I don't know. But I just want to give you a long time with you and God to work things out. So everybody bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to pray this together. And then when I stop, you just go on with Jesus. Father God, I need your love for you fill in the blank. I receive your command to forgive. I choose forgiveness. Please set me free from the trap. Set me free from the tormentors. I forgive. Please heal me. Please give me the strength to walk through this. I will not stop healing and forgiving until I love him or her like I did in the beginning. 